So if you're new to church or didn't grow up in church or the, the stories of Jesus are, are kind of new to you, then you might not know what I mean when I ask this question. Have any of you ever had testimony envy? Okay, so here's the deal. Uh, when I was uh, a student in Bible college at Trinity Baptist College in Jacksonville, Florida, uh, I traveled with a music team that would go in churches and sing and whatever, and we traveled all summer long. In the summer after my freshman year of Bible college, we were at a youth camp, actually at Trinity Youth Camp for the week. They had a guest speaker. This speaker had a testimony. He literally had a published book about his life. He'd been on TV and preached to these huge churches, whatever. And so we're there, you know, doing the music or whatever. And he's sharing this incredible story. Like this dude literally had lived on the streets as a drug addict. His life was just, and then I met Jesus. And it was this, and I'm sitting there thinking, I'm so boring. And at that age, I knew I was called to preach. I'm supposed to give a testimony. And at 18 years old, I'm like, I never smoked a cigarette, let alone whatever that dude smoked. I'm just saying. And like, I don't, I think I had given blood. I sure hadn't injected anything through a needle. I don't know what he's talking about. And man, I'd never had tasted alcohol at that time. I was still a virgin. I was like, I'm useless. I truly, I'm like, who wants to hear my story? And then it dawned on me, you know, the same grace that keeps us from harm. Is the same grace that rescues us out of harm. And what makes a testimony great is not the story. It's the star. It's about Jesus. And if we're proclaiming Jesus, we've got a great testimony. And I, I share the idea of testimony envy because if there's anybody who has an incredible testimony that's like, man, mine's not that incredible. None of us measure up to the testimony we're going to look at this morning. We're going to look at the testimony this is not exaggerating, that changed the course of human history. From a human perspective, the reason we're sitting here singing the songs of Jesus, praying to our God, and listening to the Word of God today is because of this conversion that we're about to read about. So grab your Bible if you would. If you don't have a Bible, there's one underneath the seat in front of you. Uh, we want to invite you to join with us in our tradition. We hold up our Bibles and say a creed together and a prayer together before we jump in. Uh, and if that's not where you're at in your spiritual journey, don't feel pressure uh, to join with us in that. But if it does reflect your heart, then we encourage you, let's hold up our Bibles and let's declare this together this morning. Here we go. The Bible is the Word of God. The truth of the Bible will change my life. Lord, open my heart and awaken my mind and give me grace to respond. Change me for your glory and my joy. Amen. Thank you. Please turn to Acts chapter number nine. Acts chapter number nine. We've been working through the book of Acts this year. Uh, we started the second week in January and finally getting to chapter nine this morning. Uh, Acts chapter nine. And we're going to read uh, the first 22 verses of this chapter and then make a couple observations about them. This is the conversion of Saul, beginning in verse number one. But Saul, and it says but Saul because we paused there for a few minutes. Uh, Paul showed up on the story uh, at the martyrdom of Stephen. We covered that a few weeks ago. Then we spent a two-week uh, kind of break between that story talking about a guy named Philip. And now we're coming back to Saul again. But Saul still breathing threats 
and murder. Literally, that's the idea of like growling, like 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 a rabid dog. He's breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. He did not have authority outside of Jerusalem, so he had to have papers giving him the authority to pursue these people, these people who belong to the way. This Saul is an interesting guy. His story is an interesting story. He is uniquely wired in his life experience for exactly what God had chosen for his future, just like you and just like me. See, his unique experience is that he grew up in Tarsus, which is Roman-occupied. It's a Greek city. He grew up in a Greek culture, pretty important and influential city at the time. And so he spoke Greek. And he understood Greek life. But his father was Jewish of the tribe of Benjamin. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. And so he was raised in a Jewish household that was devout and and devout in their faith, devoted to their faith. And so he grew up Jewish. He grew up speaking Hebrew in this Greek culture, speaking Greek. And the common language of the day um, that was spoken by most of the people he would have interacted with was Aramaic. And then because he was incredibly well-educated, he probably spoke some Latin too. We don't know that for sure. Smart guy, well-educated guy. He was so well-educated that when he was 14 years old, his father sent him to Jerusalem to what would have been the Harvard or the Yale or whatever of the Jewish faith. He went to the the school of Gamaliel, he sat as a feet at this great, respected rabbi. He's a powerful guy and an influential guy. And this up-and-coming star, we see him at the martyrdom of Stephen. If you remember, he was holding the coats for those who were stoning Stephen, which is a symbol of like this authoritative position. It says he approved of it, right? And here he is, still growling, whatever that means, and breathing threats. And now he's pursuing outside of Jerusalem. Because remember, the believers had scattered around. And here's the story. As he went, verse number three, on his way, he approached Damascus. And suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And not just like a light or, ooh, that's kind of bright. In Acts chapter 26, when he's giving his testimony to King Agrippa, He said it was brighter than the sun. Remember as a kid, your parents would tell you, don't look straight into the sun. And then your little kid brain went, now I have to stare at the sun. Right? And so we did. And then we're like, I see black spots. What is that? I don't know what's happening. Right? And he said it's brighter than the sun. And the reason I believe it was brighter than the sun is because he was seeing the light of the world. With a capital L and a capital W, he's seeing a manifest presence of Jesus here. Falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Again, if you grew up in the church and you've heard the story of Saul, because it's told a lot. It's, It's the good Sunday school story when we're kids. It's actually told three times in the book of Acts, two more times after this. So we know his conversion story well. 
We think of this like a Bible story. Can you imagine you're traveling down the road and a blinding light brighter than the sun itself and then a voice begins to speak to you? Like, can we take this back out of Bible story context? These are human beings. They're just on a journey, right? This is an incredible manifest experience. And he said, who are you, Lord? And I would ask, if I hear a voice today... Who is that? Okay. Who are you, Lord? He said, I am Jesus. I am Jesus whom you're persecuting, but rise, enter the city, and you'll be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. They led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus, and for three days he was without sight, and he neither ate nor drank. The only thing we know that he did for those three days is we're going to find out in a minute he was praying, and I would have been too. Dear heavens, what just happened? Please show me something. Now there's a second person in this story, verse number 10. There was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. Not that Ananias that we talked about a few weeks ago. He's no longer with us. It's different Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, which is a good thing to say when that's his name. Okay. He said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street that's called Straight. And at the house of Judas, also a different Judas, he's also no longer with us. Look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he's praying. And here's what's happened in his prayer. This is pretty amazing, right? God's just growing his faith. He's seen a vision, in in a vision, a man named Ananias. And that's your name. (laughs) He's seen a vision of a man named Ananias. Come in and lay hands on him so that he might regain his sight. Verse 13. But Ananias answered, Lord, do you know who this person is? Right? Are you sure? Who again? I've heard from many about this man and how much evil he's done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he's got papers, his authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name, that name that is above every other name, that name The only name where salvation is found. He's a chosen instrument of of mine to carry that name before the Gentiles, those who aren't Jewish, and kings, powerful people, and the children of Israel, Jewish people as well. And just in case you don't know how that works, everybody on planet Earth in this context was either Jewish or Gentile. So that's everybody. And kings too, powerful people. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of that name, of my name. And he did. We're, we're going to discover as we keep reading forward what he suffers for the sake of the name of Jesus. In verse 17, Ananias stopped arguing. He departed then entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. 
He rose, was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. For some days, he was with the disciples at Damascus. He stayed where he went to go find those who belonged to the way. And instead, here's what he did. You talk about an itinerary change. Immediately, he proclaimed Jesus. Immediately, he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying, He is the Son of God. He started doing the exact same thing his papers said would get you arrested and taken back to Jerusalem. And all who heard it were amazed. Do you think? Like the most devout opposition to Jesus, uh, that would be pretty amazing. Is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem for those who called upon this name? Has he not come here for this purpose? To bring them bound before the chief priests. But Saul increased all the more in strength. That doesn't just mean physically. It's talking about the boldness of his faith. We'll look at that a little bit next week. He confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. He went from being a hitman against Jesus to proclaiming that Jesus was the Son of God. What a conversion. And then God so used him... That the book that we hold in our hands, or the app that you have on your device, however it is that you're following along today. If you're not familiar with the story of this book, we call it a book, but it's not really a book. It's a collection of books. There's 66 books. This is more like volumes. This is more like a series of books. A series of books written by 40 different authors over a time period of over 1,600 years from three different continents and three different languages, people from every different educational background and cultural background we can imagine, and yet it tells one story. The reason we call it a book is because it tells a single story. And the amazing thing about this book, this story, is in the the Old Testament, there's 39 books, and then the New Testament begins with the life of Jesus. There's 27 books, and of those 27 books, at least 13 were written by Saul of Tarsus. That's pretty impressive. And maybe, we don't know for sure who wrote Hebrews. Some people think it was Paul. If he did, maybe it's 14 out of 27. That's pretty amazing, right? And even the books he didn't write, he influenced The book we're reading from, that this series is from, is written by Luke. The Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts, written by Luke. Guess who discipled Luke? Saul of Tarsus. He also spent time in ministry with John Mark, the Gospel of Mark. His reach and his influence was incredible. And no one has written more about the glory of the Gospel than the assassin who became an apostle. Because that's what the gospel does. It changes our lives. And sometimes it's more radical and obvious and almost cartoonish in the life of Saul. But it's no less true for you or for me. And, And we can't truly honor the conversion of Saul this morning if we make the story about Saul. we got to make much of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when we look at the gospel narrative in this story, the amazing thing is we see something that's way more than about Saul. It's about the work of Jesus among humankind. I want us to look at a couple things. The first one is that there's some firsts in this text 
that we take for granted now, almost 2,000 years later, that I think are worth noting. Here's one of the first ones. It's the first time in the Bible we find this phrase in verse number 2. He found any belonging to the way. He wanted these papers so that if he found anyone belonging to the way, men or women, belonging to the way. That's what this thing was called at the beginning. Before ecclesia, before church, before Christianity. We'll eventually get to where the term Christian was first used. But please know this. It was used in a derogative way. When the Christians were first called Christians, it was meant to be a mocking term. It was like, okay, little Jesus, a bunch of little Christs. But as the followers of Jesus, they heard that insult and they were like, what an honor to be called a little Jesus. You meant that as an insult. I'll own it. Absolutely. And now here we are. That's like this common thing. Matter of fact, people who don't even believe the same stuff about Jesus are like, how dare you not call me a Christian? Everybody wants to be a Christian now. Back then it was an insult. But they were called those who were followers of the way or those who were belonging to the way. And I love that phrase. That's the language used throughout the scriptures. Jesus himself said that there's a broad way that many will find and many will follow. And the end of that broad way is destruction. But there's a narrow way. Not very many people are going to find that way. But that's the only way that leads to life. Which is the same language of Psalm 1611. You make known to me. You reveal. You show me the path of life. Where does it lead? In your presence. There's fullness of joy. And just to make sure nobody was confused. In John chapter 14, Jesus said, I'm the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life that you find at the end of the way. No one comes to the Father except through me. So the followers of the way were essentially followers of Jesus. But I love the language of the way because it's not just a title or a name for Jesus. It implies that we are journeying a direction. Because among a lot of the American church, there's this idea of I was living a life apart from Jesus. And then I, at some point, received the gospel story. And so now I'm saved. And here I am. But the language of the scripture is, I was living for myself. I was living for the world. I was living for the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. And then I got arrested by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then I turned. I repented. And now I'm following after Jesus. I'm walking a different way. And I want to say specifically to our graduates this morning. The weird thing about graduating from high school is you're being told that you have to make all these major decisions right now. And you're like, I don't know what I want to be when I grow up. And what school do I go to? And what major do I choose? My whole future hinges on these opinions. And here's what I want to say. There's only one decision that will ultimately decide your future. And that's will you pursue the way. Follow after Jesus. Chasing the best career you can that fits you and makes you happy will not satisfy the longings of your heart. Only Jesus will satisfy the longings of your heart. He's the way. Follow after him. And that's not just true for 12th graders, church. That's still our story. 
I won't follow the American dream into a recession. I'm going to follow Jesus. Followers of the way. And so in that idea of the way, I want us to talk about how the scenery changes as we walk the way of Jesus. As we walk the way of Jesus, here's some of the stuff that changes. The first thing I want you to say is we see transformation from bystanding to belonging. From bystanding to belonging. Remember the Apostle Paul was just standing there watching as Stephen was killed for his faith. And Stephen prays, Father, don't hold this against them. St. Augustine said, we owe Paul to the prayer of Stephen. He watched that. He heard that. I just wonder, as he heard the voice of Jesus that day, was he thinking, Stephen was right. But look at verses 4 and 5, this conversation he has with Jesus Jesus speaks, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He wasn't. Jesus was ascended, seated at the right hand of the Father. What are you talking about, Jesus? He was persecuting the church. But Jesus did not say, why are you persecuting them? Or even worse, Jesus didn't say, why are you persecuting it? As though church is a place or building He said, why are you persecuting me? And in case there was no confusion, he's like, who are you? I am Jesus whom you're persecuting. Jesus sees those of us who belong to him as part of him. Like, we're not spectating. Here's the deal. The fact that Paul was a bystander at Stephen's death is a beautiful picture for us about the difference between religion... And following Jesus. Because religion is a spectator sport. Following Jesus, everybody's in the game. And if you're not, maybe you're just religious. And I don't know if you know this, but that's not going to cut it. The Apostle Paul was really religious when he was completely against Jesus. There's a difference between being a spectator to a belief system and really belonging to it. We belong to Jesus. Which means in this transition on the way that we transition from bystanding to belonging, we're a part of something. In there, there's this beauty that we're persecuted yet protected. Because persecution is happening. People are losing their lives for the faith. And Jesus is saying, this is ultimately happening to me. So when a believer is persecuted, it's not ultimately about our persecution. We're protected in Christ because it's all about him. Right? When people don't agree with us or get along with us and we get our feelings hurt so bad, that means somehow we think this is about us. It's about him. And we're hidden in him and our future is secure in him and our hope is unshakable in him. So even when we're persecuted, we're protected. Which means that church is not primarily a thing we go to. 
It's what we belong to. And if we belong to it, we'll participate in it. Right? I think the idea of an event that we come to once a week has polluted the American church. And it's only gotten worse in the last two years. This is the bride of Christ. That's what the church is called, the bride of Christ. If you tell me, hey, Doug, I love you, man, but I can't stand Marisa. Bro, we're not cool. Like, then you don't love me. And depending on how, what size you are, you might should duck. If you're bigger than me, I'm, I don't know. <laughs> Depends on if Marisa overheard you or not. But as cartoonish as that is, that's like the the new normal is, hey, Jesus laid down his life to get me to heaven. That's awesome. I'm just super disinterested in his bride. I'm dismissive and detached and uninterested in it. If we belong to this thing, there's some kind of safety and protection in belonging to Jesus together. That's the language that's presented here. Here's, here's another transition that happens on this journey. We're sinners, yet called saints. And here's another first. Look at verse 13. Ananias, when he's arguing with God, <laughs> I have to go see who? Saul. He says this. He said, we've heard the stuff he's done, right? To the saints at Jerusalem. This is the first time in the book of Acts that followers of Jesus are called saints. That term ends up being used about 200 times in the Bible for those of us who are followers of Jesus. And you know what's amazing about that? If we're honest with each other, we are not very saintly. He calls sinners saints. Because we belong to Jesus. So when God the Father looks at us, he sees Jesus. And we fall short a million times. We still sin. But our identity is secure. He sees you as a saint. It's amazing to me that you'll drive around this city and see churches named St. Paul's Church of the blah, blah, blah. Like the dude was a murderer. People will tell me, they'll be like, dude, I don't think I can really do much for God if you knew my past. If you were not an assassin against Jesus, then I think there's room for you to be useful to the kingdom of God. And I don't see anybody in this room nimble enough looking to be an assassin. No offense. If you, were, if you weren't an assassin against Christ, then I believe you can be useful to the kingdom of God. It's incredible what God, what God would do through Saul. I, I'm going to say this real quick. I got time. Okay. So when I was growing up, I think I heard that Jesus changed Saul's name to Paul. You ever heard that? Right? Because he's called Paul now. Okay. And we do see in the Bible with other people that they have an encounter with God and he does give them a new name. That is not what happened here. 
Jesus calls him Saul in this moment. And then after his conversion, he is called Saul 11 more times. Here's the deal. The names Saul and Paul are the exact same name. One is a Greek form. One's a Hebrew form. When he was a devout Hebrew leader, he went by Saul. When he was sent out as a missionary among Greek-speaking people, they called him Paul. But he's the same guy because God turned the world upside down through Saul of Tarsus. That's the kind of God we serve. Like he'd have to pretend to be somebody else with the same baggage and the same failures and the same past. God used him to change the world. Isn't that incredible? Sinners yet called saints. Here's another change. We go from being common, ordinary, to crucial in the plan of God. Look at verse 10. There was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. He's called a disciple. You know what a disciple is? Follower. He's a follower of Jesus. That's the same title that all of us wear. He's not an apostle. He's not a deacon. He's not an evangelist. He's not a bishop. He's not a reverend. He's just a disciple. And the amazing thing is, God used him to disciple the greatest church planner who's ever lived in the history of the church. A common, ordinary, normal guy, which has been the theme through the book of Acts. And I know you're going to get sick of hearing me say this. God uses ordinary people who have an extraordinary feeling of the Holy Spirit to change the world with the power of the gospel. He's not looking for the rock star or the superstar. That's what we do. We love making heroes out of everybody else. But we've already got a hero. His name's Jesus. He's looking for ordinary people who will just say, hey, I'll be used of you. And so you might not be the most skilled person, most gifted person. You might see people up here playing an instrument and be like, I can't even play the radio. and Whatever. You don't have to have some certain skill set to be useful to Jesus. You're in nobody's shadow. The cross has removed the shadow. Well, I'm just ordinary. Welcome to the party. That's the glory of, of following after Jesus. He uses ordinary people. And I love that the Apostle Paul was threatened, if you remember in verse number two, by men and women belonging to the way. And I know I pointed this out a lot too in the book of Acts, but we're going to say it again because every time it's in the text, it's worth saying. If the Apostle Paul, if Saul of Tarsus, whatever, went to Damascus because he wanted to arrest a bunch of Jewish people, he would only look for men. He would go to the synagogue and he would find men. But here's the thing about the way. God empowers and uses and exalts men and women. This is the most uncommon, bizarre thing at that time in history. And the other common, ordinary thing we see in the text that I think is worth noting this morning, the Apostle Paul was a single man. He was married. Maybe he was widowed, we don't know, but we know that he was single. And so to the to the single mom this morning who feels like, I just don't think I can make a big difference in the world. I got good news for you. 
like the most impactful person I know of on planet Earth was single. And here's what that also means. Single person, young people. It means you don't need a relationship to define you. It means you don't need a relationship to be valuable. You don't need a relationship to be useful to the kingdom of God on planet Earth. There's not a single dude or a single girl who will ever complete you. That's bogus. Only Jesus will complete you because he's the one who made you. Those of you who are in a relationship, I would say to you, there's not a new brand of relationship that will satisfy you either. There's not somebody else who's going to put up with you better than the spouse that you have. God's designed this marriage to last a lifetime. And if it's that difficult, let's get humble and honest enough to have some hard conversations about how your marriage can glorify Christ right in its broken mess. God uses ordinary people to accomplish extraordinary things because that way he gets all the glory for it. If God only uses superstars, then he shares the spotlight with a superstar. It ain't about us. It's all about him. Ananias. The dude like doesn't appear on the rest of this. He discipled Saul and didn't get like a plaque. There was no like retirement ceremony. They didn't name anything after him. Like I've never seen a St. Ananias Episcopal Church ever. Because on this way, common, ordinary people are crucial to the family. What would this story look like if Ananias said, no, that's terrifying. I'm not going. Which leads us to the next one. In this following of the way, we go from comfortable to courageous. I don't, I don't know of a moment when I... I really ask the Holy Spirit, help me somehow be in the mindset of Ananias hearing this, this task, this order. Go to Saul of Tarsus and lay hands on him. What? Like who? I, I tried to come up with an example that would fit. I don't know. Like I don't. I know there's plenty of people who aren't fans of mine, but I don't know of anybody actively seeking to assassinate me today. And if I did, and God was like, hey, go to their house. Like, what? And yet verse 17, I love how simple it says it. So Ananias departed and entered the house. Okay. Like, just don't be like the courage that this ordinary guy walked in. And here's the deal. If we're going to keep following the way in this culture and in this time, we're going to have to get outside of our comfort zone and walk with some courage. It's going to demand that we don't just seek in our life, that that our mission is, I want to be as comfortable as I can be. I want to make as much money as I can to make my life as bubble wrapped as possible. And instead, he's going to call us to leverage our influence with courage for the kingdom of God. Which might mean going to some difficult places. It might mean having some difficult conversations. It might mean talking to that family member who doesn't want to hear about Jesus. And yet you have the courage to say, I love you too much not to talk to you about this one more time. 
If we're following the way, what he's doing is he's transferring us from comfort zones into seasons of courage. We follow the way we go from bystanding to belonging, persecuted yet protected, sinners yet saints, common, ordinary yet crucial, and comfortable to courageous. And then here's the last one I want to bring attention to this morning because I just think this is amazing. As we travel this way, we go from being foes to family. Because in verse 17, when he enters that house, he says, Brother Saul. When I grew up in church, everybody was brother and sister. Everybody. Hey, Brother Fred, how you doing today? Everybody. First time you met somebody, what's your name, Bob? Hey, Brother Bob. Everybody was brother and sister. Maybe we need to go back to that again. Because maybe if we'll remind ourselves that we're family, we'll stop looking at each other like we're the enemy. The reality is I don't let I've ever met a person who's actually my enemy. There, there's a real enemy. And I think one of his missions, one of his goals is to get us to forget that we're family. To think that we're the enemy. But what the gospel does is the gospel unites. The gospel heals our differences. It literally takes a guy who's seeking his arrest, his potential death, and makes him a brother. When I look at my childhood with my brothers, there were days that we were seeking each other's death. We were still brothers. We serve a God who makes the strongest of foes family in Christ because we need each other as we walk the way. And all of that, you know what that's called? Every bit of what we've discussed? It's called the gospel. That's the good news of Jesus Christ. The thing that would eventually in the city of Rome cost Saul of Tarsus his life. It's the most valuable thing in the world. It's the most precious thing in the world. I'll close with this thought. The, there's a, a story from Texas that went viral this past week. And I saw a Texas story going viral, and so I clicked on it because, hey, here we go. It's Texas. And the story starts off with a Texan woman went shopping. I was like, well, that is not newsworthy. The story is that a a woman from Texas went to a Goodwill. Did you hear this story? And she found a bust. You know, sculpture head. Pretty significant one. It was like 50 pounds, 54 pounds. She found it sitting on the floor underneath the table in the back of this Goodwill. It was dirty. And there's a price tag on the dude's cheek. $34.99. And, and here's what is newsworthy to me. She thought that was a good deal and bought it. I'm like, I don't, anyways. Um, she bought this bust for $34.99. She loves antiquing. She sells stuff. She has a little business. And she's like, I think I could sell this for more than that. 
But her wheels started spinning, her spidey tenses started tingling, and she's like, I think there's something up with this. I, I don't think this is just decoration. So she took it to a, um, a person who studies historical artifacts, and she said, hey, is this legit? And it took them months of research to discover that this bust is over 2,000 years old. It predates Jesus. Some military ruler in the Roman Empire. And it's now in a museum. It's this incredible relic. It belonged to some German oligarch and during World War II ended up being put in storage and then somehow ended up in Texas at a Goodwill for $34.99. They had no idea this priceless 2,000-year-old thing was in their presence. And man, I think a lot of us walk through day-to-day life with this story of Jesus so unaware of the weight and beauty of this story. I believe there's nothing better than what Christ has done for us. That he, Because here's what he really does. The, the last point we had was he turns foes into family. But the real foe isn't us against each other. There's, the Apostle Paul would later tell us that we were enemies of God before we met Jesus. And as we opposed him, while we were his enemies... He sent His Son to die for us so that He could restore us to Himself. I believe that's worth a lot more than $34.99. This treasure is of infinite value. We serve a God who takes us for being spectators, bystanders. We belong to something that's changing our lives. Persecuted yet protected. Sinners yet saints. Common and ordinary yet crucial to his family. From comfortable to courageous. From foe to family. This is the beauty and the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. What matters more than anything else on planet earth today is do you know for sure you've placed your faith in the good news of Jesus Christ? Do you know for sure you have a relationship with God through the work of the cross? If you don't know for sure that that's your story, we'd love to have a conversation with you to begin a conversation today about how you can know for sure that you're on the way that leads to life.